Have you ever taken a moment to reflect on how your own K-12 experiences have shaped your self-perception? Has the awareness of racial disparities in education led you to question how these iniquities might impact your child's educational journey? Welcome to The Last Will Be First, the podcast that redefines the Black experience. This podcast is for those who are done with limiting headlines that too often hold our communities back. In this upcoming series, we go back to school, hearing from a teacher, administrator, and advisor working on the front lines to challenge misconceptions about Black students' attitudes toward achievement and education. Through their stories, we uncover the challenges dedicated teachers face amidst limited resources and systemic obstacles, gain insights from a school administrator seeking innovative solutions to bridge the gap between schools and communities, and learn about the importance of holistic student development from an alternative education advisor and school social worker. In each episode, we seek to understand what is truly needed from both within the school system and the surrounding community to uplift our students. Their needs, which are often overlooked, will take center stage as we strive to ensure they are counted first rather than last. It's just things that are stacked up against us that we have to fight through. And the main really thing is, you know, just the trauma that our kids see, um, what they go home to, what they have to deal with at night, what they deal with right before coming to school. You know, they they just live different lives. And we have to fight through that before we can get to actually what's between their two ears. According to the National Center for Education, Florida's Black students had an average reading score that was 28 points lower than white students last year. Now, this performance gap is one that has persisted for more than two decades. This is the last to be first. I'm your host, Kevante Smalls, and later I'll be joined by my co-host, Brittany Jones. But now I'm going to introduce you to three terms that's impacting our children in classrooms. Some of them you've likely heard of before, and some may be new to you. First is institutional racism. It's defined as blocking people of color from assessing goods, services, and opportunities, according to Emory University professor Alisa Sewell. Second is implicit bias. It's a negative attitude a person has but may not be consciously aware that they have it against a specific social group, which may include people of color, according to the American Psychological Association. And third is stereotype threat. It's a phrase that was coined in 1995 by researchers Claude Steele and Joshua Aronson. This term describes the mental strain and impaired ability to focus and perform well due to the conscious awareness of confirming a negative stereotype about your group. Now, racial bias and institutional racism are external forces imposed on us, rooted in how others perceive our race or ethnic group. On the other hand, stereotype threat comes from a different place. Basically, it's like having a nagging worry that our performance might end up confirming those negative stereotypes, and in this awareness, can actually mess with our ability to perform at our best. It's like carrying this burden that we might be judged based on our race, ethnicity, gender, or culture, rather than our true abilities. Now, in this episode, we'll talk to a teacher and a former assistant principal to peel back the layers and understand the impact of institutional racism, racial bias, and stereotype threat all have on Black students. To help shed light on that is our first guest, Sheree Robinson. She's a former elementary school teacher in Jacksonville, Florida, and she explains how the pressures of teaching to a test, 
ongoing politics, and institutional racism are all colliding and is causing many worthy teachers to run for the exit. You know, as it relates to the state of education and our Black youth and what you're seeing, um, you know, is it is it really serving them as it should be? Or are there some issues culturally that you are seeing that maybe should be have more of a spotlight shined on it so we as a community can better address it? Okay, so I definitely would say that there are gaps um, for our community. Um, equity is a big thing for me, and it's just not that way. Um, of course, you know, I live in a very segregated city, and what's on one side of the bridge is not happening on the other side of the bridge. Parents know that. Teachers know that, administrators know that. And so while I'm on one side of the bridge trying to give that um, experience or that quality education that I know my students deserve and need to be successful in this world, we're just, um, it's just things that are stacked up against us that we have to fight through. And the main really thing is, you know, just the trauma that our kids see. Um, they're what they go home to, what they have to deal with at night, what they deal with right before coming to school. You know, they, they just di live different lives and we have to fight through that before we can get to actually what's between their two ears and educating them and getting them to the place where um, they can be successful. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really large gaps. And I think that we um, because it's public education, we should do a better job at treating the trauma that comes through it you know, oftentimes when we see these kids, like you guys as teachers, you're seeing them go through so many different things. You see that we are trying to make progress. We know that obviously education is like key to being able to get to a, a measurable amount of success. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that since you're saying that they, they kind of don't have the proper tools, I guess, in place and not necessarily just like where you work in the county, but just overall the education yeah. system, do you think that um, that hinders um, who we become in the future if we don't have those resources readily available to us? Definitely, because it um, it kind of halts the process. Um, we have to stop to deal with what we're seeing and somewhere else they can fly through and get through. Um, the kids are expected to take a test on a certain date and expected to have a certain amount of games or a certain score. But when you're fighting <laughs> through so much, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it, when that day comes, we're giving you the test and that's that. Um, it doesn't matter what. So of course you have kids that can rise to the occasion that can, you know, fly through um, regardless of whatever is thrown at them. Um, and then you have some kids that fall through the cracks. They, they struggle, um, but it doesn't necessarily speak to their true intelligence. Um, so I just I just feel like if we um, paid attention to the whole child, we we heard that preached for so long, but it wasn't being lived out amongst our students at all. Um, so if we actually do pay attention to the whole child and um, and a lot of it is community. We've gotten away from that. Um, a lot of it is is bringing those parents in. I feel like I've seen an influx of parental um, participation because of what they were able to see when their kids were home with them during the pandemic. 
and that level of appreciation that the world suddenly had for teachers. Um, and, you know, they get that curiosity. Okay, well, how is my child really doing? Because he was struggling at home. I was struggling to support them. You know, what are you doing in the school, you know, in the classroom? What works? So I hear a lot of that. I see a lot of that, which is great. Um, but we need more because our kids need to see us all as a team working on their behalf, um, just working so that we're all successful in the long run. Sharid, for yourself, like, do you rec- like before becoming a teacher, do you think that ultimately like the system, the education system played a role in who you are today? Um, yes, very much so. I feel like the first uh, encounter we have with education is actually our culture in our homes with our parents, with our brothers and sisters, with our grandparents and what they pass down. Like that is very important in figuring out who we are, our place in this world, our identity. And when you don't see representation, it doesn't give you the um, confidence or it doesn't give you the the just the push that you need to say, you know, no, I can do this. Um, and I feel like that uh, it kind of handicapped me because I, I, I had to find that later. Um, I had to find it when it became cool to be black. Like, you know, I it wasn't innate in me. It wasn't already, you know, in me. Um, and I feel like me bringing those cultural experiences in my classroom, you know, just as little as, you know, putting up pictures of us, you know, as we go throughout our day, I'll take pictures and I'll print them out and put them up on the board so that they see, okay, this is us. You know, this is, we are, this is how we're represented. We learn too. You know, we can raise our, you know, how you see those, um, what is it? The stock photos of the kids raising their hands. Okay. You know, y'all got your hands up and take pictures. Like this, we do this too. So it's important for the kids to see themselves um, in that lane, being able to learn. Part of what we want to tackle with this particular episode is how culturally we approach education. Because traditionally, you know, for many Black families, education is your ticket out, is your ticket to success, because many of us don't have generational wealth to rely on. Or, you know, unless our parents are very successful in a company and we're kind of grandfathered in but normally we don't have those clear-cut pathways but education has traditionally been that and so i thought that was interesting that you said you're noticing an uptick and that parental involvement um which could you know be a total paradigm shift if that continues on and if that is more widespread yeah i i um just recently like started sharing with people that like, I don't think we as parents realized um, the power that we have in the public education system. They are providing a service to the people. And so if we stand up and say as parents, um, this is what we like, this is what we don't like, um, then they are forced, you know, to basically listen. Um, The issue with that is that we actually don't own homes in the neighborhoods where our kids go. So, you know, we can't vote for who's teaching our kids and the funds that come into our classroom. And um, also, it's just so crazy. It's just, I don't know. It's just wild that like, we just don't actually, we think we have um, 
uh, I guess I say, and so I guess they kind of make us believe we do, but we we really don't. Um, and economically, you're talking about home ownership. Um, I'm a single parent. Like that was something that was wild for me to even dream of being able to do because of what I had left over <laughs> every check. So. You know, and, and everybody wants the best for their kids. Um, everybody's looking for it. But also, you know, we have to we have to survive. We have to do what's best for us. So while the soccer mom, you know, can drop their kids off, they got time to make their kids lunch and all of that kind of stuff. Like we have to get up, get our kids up early, <laughs> get them out of the door so we can make it to work. You know, if we're working late, we got to get grandma to pick them up. You know, stuff like, it's just it's just a different, whole different kind of thing going on but yeah like we if I if if parents knew the power that we have instead of like saying oh the teacher should strike no the service is provided for you guys like if y'all pull them kids out of school before FTE I don't think y'all should say this <laughs> because every kid is a dollar sign let's just be real education is now a business and you know if those kids don't show up those first 10 days then that's going to make a big uh, a big message. It's going to send a big message to the state, to the world, that, hey, you know, us as parents, we're not happy. Um, we want more say. And, you know, it's just, it just is what it is. But it's, I think people are waking up, um, but it's going to take a lot more. Um, and I think a lot more is being uncovered because you have all these vacancies for teachers. Um, and there are even now um, administrators who are walking out because if I don't have any teachers, you know, what do you what do you expect me to do? I'm just one person. So it's 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 the, I feel like education is really turning upside down. Um, and it, it, it's almost like it, we, we're seeing a revolution right before our eyes. You know, I know there is uh, a teacher shortage. I know Florida actually is quite substantial, but I know it's not just Florida that's dealing with that. The kids who are may end up suffering most from this as you sort of touched on aren't the kids is probably in suburbia because they may have access to a tutor they may have access to you know going to these after school programs it's going to be the you know the kids in the public school the title one schools in particular those are going to be the ones that are going to be suffering the most from that and so uh just from your perspective and what you're seeing and feeling and what your experience tells you what impact could that have on the next generation of kids coming through if nothing's done about it? Um, I honestly feel like the only answer would be virtual. Um, virtual school, a really big push, push for um, virtual school simply because, um, I don't know, it, it was way more possible. Um, it was way more possible for teachers to do what they needed to do but also, again, like if you think about virtual school, like a lot of our kids actually didn't have access to the computers, So the computers were basically given. Um, and then what about the kids that didn't have access to Wi-Fi or Internet at home? Um, so honestly, like I feel like we're screwed <laughs> either way um, that that demographic um, because they need so much. Um, it would it would literally have to take a community of people going in and getting those kids and making sure they have what they need. Like it would have to take aunts, uncles, you know, other, other teachers who knew of, cause like 
in our school, we have a lot of cousins, a lot of five or six cousins, cousins coming to school together because that one family member understands how important education is. Um, so it'll be a lot of that. Like, um, yeah, it'll be a lot of that happening for our kids. But like if if this shortage continues, like I, I really feel like there will be no choice but to go to virtual. Um, and then we'd, we'd, we'd be back to finding those lost kids, lost kids. And um, yeah, it would. But a lot of our kids did thrive. They did thrive better at home. Um, I'll, we would joke about how, you know how they talk about the pandemic babies. So we had pandemic kids who came in and now they didn't know how to sit. They didn't know how to wait their turn to speak. You know, that was just something I mean, like, but anyway, yeah. So they, they were more comfortable at home. They were in a place, um, where they didn't, it wasn't a lot of distraction. They sat and they learned and then mom or whoever was right there making sure they did too. Um, so that it was, it was a lot of strength in that, but um, also a lot of weaknesses were um, highlighted too with uh, like domestic violence at home and stuff like that. So I don't think um, I don't think there's a we can really put a finger on what's gonna happen to our Title One kids. Um, either way, um, I feel like. Because we are a working class, you know, we have to go to work to survive. I feel like the best way is to keep them in school and to give, but but come with that public service that we're supposed to be. If we see a, a, a uh, an area that needs work on, like, which is, I feel like, the trauma or whatever, like, we need to come and provide that. From the classroom and into the principal's office, Rakesha Palmer served as a middle school assistant principal in Pensacola, Florida. And she explains the challenges teachers like Sheree Robinson face are often top of mind for black administrators too. You know, the state of education right now for our black families, uh, just what are you seeing in terms of what's going well and some things that we as a culture can do better with? Um, you know, after our conversation um, the other night, like I really just, I was thinking for a minute, just, you know, what, what do I feel made me strong as a student? Um, and I look back at the fact that um, I went to a neighborhood school where it was predominantly black students. And um, uh, most of my teachers were black, but we did have, you know, a combination of um, um, Caucasian teachers in our schools. Um, but there was just this confidence level that you had because people were constantly pointing to your life. They were, you know, you didn't feel like you were less than anybody else because a lot of people around you that were succeeding looked like you. So we kind of had this community of just pushing ourselves. And I know there's often this question, like, did integration hurt us or help us? And I do think that it's a, you know, it's a double-edged sword because I think there was power in having schools where we were um, predominantly the students. Um, but then I also think that there was, there's always, there's power in integration as well, because I think that we just learn from different, from various cultures. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because when we look at what works for Black students, like it were it was those it it was it was that atmosphere that was just automatically created for me when I walked into Golden Elementary School when I walked into CAY's Elementary School 
um, that we're now having to make sure that we create um, for individual students. Um, and when you come from a culture that you're not accustomed to doing that, and you have our students in that culture, um, that like it's it's like extra work um, because you know that is just something that we did. Now the community's changed a lot too because the dynamics of the family has changed so much. You know, back then you had, you know, if mom and dad couldn't be there, grandmama was there to help take care of you. Um, my sisters and I were not latchkey kids, even though both of our parents worked. You know, we always had my grandmother's home to come home to. We were safe. We had food on the table. We were in a Christian environment um, and not even so much Christian as as far as religion. But we were in an environment that just was not wild. And so um, and most of the community of of students that I went to school with were also in environments like that. And so things have definitely changed. So I know that, you know, some of those schools struggle now with the dynamics of where they are versus where we were back then. But now you have a lot of kids who um, aren't, they don't even have the stability that we had. Like we weren't, we didn't have a lot of kids moving from home to home because the rent can't get paid. Um, people own their homes. Um, even though it wasn't like extravagant. So I just was looking at that and I was just thinking about just what our students need, um, those affirmations and how those were things we were getting in the church. Those were things we were getting in school. Um, and they just really had a an expectation of excellence. Like you're going to do well or I'm going to paddle you and then I'm going to call your mama and she's going to paddle you. <laughs> and so... Um, there was just that expectation that I need to do my work. I got to do what I need to do. So you had that motivation of not just I want to succeed, but I had the motivation of I don't want to get a whooping. And so I better do what I'm supposed to do. And so um, I just think things are so different now and we just have to find a new way to motivate our students. And so um, I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that was so important to what, you know, helped me to become and shape who I am today. And then the whole aspect of like, you know, taking that mindset of, I don't want to say older generation, but of an older generation and trying to apply that to today's mm -hmm. youth, that in itself, as you kind of pointed out, is a challenge. Um, and then waves in the middle of that, we do have our black educators who are always kind of looking out for the black students and trying to find a way to help lead them and navigate them through those challenging paths. Well, it's interesting because when I was an administrator, the last three years that I was um, in the field, um, I was at a middle school and most of the teachers, I was the first black administrator that that school had had. Um, and in, and it was, and it's a very small, um, very small school. Um, but the staff was predominantly white, all except for our band director and a core class teacher, one other teacher. Um, and so they just did not have. Um, but the black population was not small. I mean, they I mean, and it wasn't even it, it, the black teachers didn't just did not apply to be there. Like um, and even before I got there, there may have been one or two that was there. But it's interesting because I remember 
it was um, there were a group of black. There was there were a few black male students who actually scored, you know, fairly well on the test and on um, the, the state assessment. But I had a Caucasian teacher who came to me and she said, Miss Palmer, these guys need to be challenged. They're in my regular class, but I know that we need to move them up. Um, we need to move them up because I feel like if we put them in a class, like an advanced class, they're going to come up to that level. And so we did everything that we could to change those student schedules. And absolutely, they performed because what we had done at a, as a staff, we had identified that all of these students that were in honors classes, that were getting like those honors points in the in the middle school level and at the middle school level that's when you take like your algebra and you take classes like that we found that our numbers were low with african americans because we didn't have enough in those classes we were not placing those students in those classes um especially when we were just going on the test score um and it did not mean that those kids could not do the work but we weren't even giving them a shot and so many times when you walk into honors classes and you walk into advanced classes and you walk into AP classes or pre-AP classes, you do not see a lot of students that look like us. And so as an administrator, it has to become our priority, be you black or white, whoever's listening to this podcast, we've got to be intentional in placing those students that have has that potential in those classes regardless of the scores and get putting that scaffolding in place to help them because a little bit of struggle is okay and as especially we if we set systems in place to make sure we support them so that they can be successful um as a black teacher like um when i was at the high school level i was in the reading department and so I saw it all the time. I saw our students who were overwhelmingly in low-level reading classes, double-blocked reading classes, double-blocked math class. I mean, who is motivated after being double-blocked for two core classes and you still have science and social studies you have to fit in there and you may get an elective. But your class is driven by the fact that your test scores were low. And so it would be frustrating because when you looked at these kids and you looked at them traditionally, and one of my friends who's actually um, a principal in that district now, who's your the principal of your old high school, um, Mr. Smalls, um, she looked and um, she was a reading teacher. I was a reading coach. And we were just looking at our data. We were trying to figure out what is going on. How can we help these kids? Like, where did the dip come in? Where did they fall? And so many times, I kid you not, those kids that ended up being level ones, and for those who don't know, a level one is like the lowest you can score. When they were in elementary school were threes, fours, and fives. And something between being in fifth grade to getting to middle school shifted. And that is where we started to see the decline. But so many of those kids were not just level ones all their life. Some of them, yes, 
but an overwhelming amount of students were not low all of their life. And so we would be, we would just be baffled in looking at this data that showed that they were at three, four, and a five, and now they get to high school and they're level one. What happened? And it wasn't until I started raising a black male teenage son that I saw how important my role as a parent is. No, I'm not going to let you put my child in a class that is not advanced. He will stay in this class because he has been a level three and four in reading and he's going to stay there. My expectation for him did not shift. It frustrated him to no end because it was difficult. And even now he fights me about this pre-AP class he's in and he's struggling in it. And I'm okay with that because if you're struggling, you're working and you're, you're, you're struggling and something is going to make sense. So as a parent, we have got to make sure that we're pushing our kids to be the best they can be at the best that they have. And not just the best they can be in average classes. Now, what does that mean as educators? And what does that mean as former educators? We've got to help parents become good consumers of their students' education because they don't know what to ask. I helped when I was in the school setting. Um, there was a family of students who I helped just navigate through. They just want to be to help tutor their child. She had been put back in elementary school and she and her sister were going to be graduating at the same time. Now, this was the summer before her junior year. She said to me, I want to graduate with my class. Now, this student was exceptional. She was she was labeled in elementary school and in middle and high. She carried that exceptionality. Well, she decided she wanted to graduate the summer before her junior year. Homegirl, who had an exceptionality, did her entire junior and senior year simultaneously and came out with a 3.5 GPA. Senior and junior year at the same time, her Englishes, her maths, her government, she was stressed to the nines. Now, she was very, very stressed. She took her, she took her, um, her, her junior classes on, in Florida virtual school and she took her senior classes face to face and they said she couldn't do it. And not only did she do it, she did it without dropping below a B ever. A student who since elementary school had been labeled that she couldn't do it, did two years and one and landed with an A average. What, that, what does that say to us? That if we set the bar and we put the the support in place to help them succeed, that they can do it. Now, those parents are very well-to-do parents. They are not broke by a long shot. Did not live in the shabby neighborhood. Matter of fact, you had to go through the gate guard to get to their house. But they did not have the resource of knowing what to do, which is why they asked me to help. And that is what we have to be for our parents overwhelmingly, just helping them to navigate. When you contact the counselor, this is what you need to ask for. When you talk, when you go and you have this meeting and you have this ESE meeting, or you go and you have this 504 plan meeting, 
These are the things that you need to help set in place. Because many of our parents, they've not been in school since they were in school. And they weren't a part of any of those meetings and they don't know how to advocate for their children. And so as black educators, the reason it's so important for us to be in there, and I wouldn't even say just as black educators, but educators who care about our black and brown children and our kids who come from poverty, who don't have access to the resources that they need, that we have to be those advocates for them. And we have to help them articulate um, whatever needs to be articulated to make sure that their students can be successful. Knowing that um, all of these different things play a huge role in who we become when we we graduate high school and we graduate, some people graduate college or whatever the next steps may be. How does what we experience um, at all levels of the public school system help ultimately shape our identity and who we become? Like if you go through those experiences that you just named and you don't have those teachers who are fighting for you and all these things, ultimately, what does that result in for us? What does that look like? It honestly really just can depend. I mean, we can see the results of like just that the fragment, the fragmented community that we have now. We see so many of our kids that are struggling um, and they don't have those support systems or they've experienced some level of trauma that has caused them to act out in school. Um, I do know that teachers are trying to become more informed in trauma-informed care where they don't just look at the student, but they consider the trauma that kids have experienced and how those things actually have played are playing a part into the way that student is performing behaviorally and academically. Um, when we were doing trauma-informed care, there was a survey that we took. And interestingly, most of the black teachers uh, or educators that were on our staff at my middle school had experienced levels of trauma much higher than our white teacher peers. And I can't remember all the questions and you can go look up like a trauma-informed care survey, but had you ever, like questions like, have you ever seen somebody get beat up? Have you ever seen somebody get shot? Have you ever seen um, abuse, um, were you ever abused? Um, um, did your parents experience a divorce? Um, did people ever get drunk in front of you? Those were the kind of questions that, that they asked. And overwhelmingly, the Black teachers outscored our white counterparts, which says that I'm here in this professional setting and I'm still I still have to deal with the trauma from my childhood or even from my home. Like, but I know how to cover that up and keep moving because I'm mature. And if I've seen it and I did not have levels of poverty, so many of our other kids have seen, what in the world are they experiencing? Like levels of trauma that we can't even begin to fathom. And those things shape you as an adult. When you think about what you went through as an adult and you may as, or as a child, or as a teenager, or even as a young adult, and you had somebody to guide you through that hurt and guide you through that pain, it helped to shape who you were. And hopefully you came out a stronger individual. If we don't have anybody who ever gets in to intervene, 
to save, to help, to intercede for that child, the chances of that child being able to survive and be a productive citizen is very low. If they know that in order to eat, I got to steal or sell my body, that will one day catch up with them. And it's going to be a price that they will have to pay. They're going to end up in jail or they're going to end up on the streets selling their body because that's the only way I can eat. Because the food in my house is being sold to feed a habit that has nothing to do with me and my siblings being able to survive. So we don't start stepping in like if we really want to see our schools change, if we really want to see our public schools change, we've got to change our communities. Um, they, I was talking to someone, they were, um, um, fussing about one of the neighborhood schools back home in Florida being closed down, that was closing down. And, um, and I was talking to, um, this person as they were headed into the school board meeting to like go in there to like fuss and like raise, like just purity, right? They were ready. And I remember looking at them cause it was a neighborhood I was in and it was a school that I attended. And I said to him. I said, have you seen our neighborhood? Young people are not moving into our old community. Older people are there. And the people who can afford to come there ain't trying to live there. They going somewhere else. And what I understood as an administrator about your neighborhood is that it relies on tax dollars and it relies on FTE. And so it relies on students coming because you get money for the children to show up. Well, if people don't want their kids to show up because they want their kids to go to the school on the north end of town because it's better, I'm going to try to find my way up there and out there, then it's going to affect our neighborhoods and our communities. So if we want to see neighborhood schools come back, guess what we got to do? We got to go in and we got to rehab it. We ain't got to gentrify it where folk can't afford to live there, but we got to make it look like something. I'm here in Texas now, and I kid you not, I'm sitting in, I live in Dallas, Texas, McKinney, North Dallas, which is a, um upper middle class, and some people are very, very wealthy, like up here, like just like the Deion Sanders house in Prosper, Texas, um, that he first, that he had when he was out this way, is probably about 10 miles away from my live. So pretty affluent part of town. There are two full-fledged elementary schools from where I am within a mile radius. The kids can walk. If you live on that end, you walk that way. If you live on this end, you walk this way. You go down the street, the main street. There are three middle schools and two big high schools. But we also have the FTE, the money and the tax dollars that they're paying for. And I get here and I'm just like, good gracious, these folks really care about their schools. Matter of fact, they don't even design neighborhoods with our schools in mind. And so therefore they tax you that way <laughs> too, because they're going to have schools because they, they're pa these parents do not want their students in classrooms that are too big. And you're going to pay their teachers well so that they will stay. And you don't see a whole, you see a lot of Montessori schools, but you don't see a whole lot of private schools in my area because the public school system is so good. So we've got to, if we want to shape our kids 
for the next generation, it definitely starts at the community level because that's where that change is going to take place. And until we are able to really just help our kids. And so what do you do for the child that's going home to a bunch of trauma? Well, you help them not experience that trauma when they walk into your classroom. And that's where we as educators have got to be different. Um, and that and that is and that can be very challenging because some kids can be extremely challenging, especially in some school settings. It can be very hard. Um, but if we don't change those things, then we're gonna be shaping kids that are not gonna be productive. And that's not gonna be good for the next generation. Because they're gonna raise kids who are just as unproductive as they are. I think someone who doesn't have the extensive education uh educator experience as you do, I just have a year after college subject. But I can tell you there was a clear visual difference in the students that had their parents invested into them and those that didn't. And with me being a young black male teacher figure for them. And when I came in there and I'm telling them, this is what we're going to do today. I went over the lesson and they knew I was serious about it. They gravitated to me and it took me a little bit to figure out why, because I was going out of my way to be strict. And I realized they didn't have that figure that really showed them they really care. Like really, at the end of the day, that kind of all boils down to that from the investment of the schools to how teachers uh, react and present to those students, taking in mind all of the trauma, as you said, that is a little more top of mind for people that are outside of the Black community nowadays. But understanding that stuff exists. And I think that is a call to action for the Black community to be more invested into our communities because we know quote unquote we know what the d schools look like we know what the f schools traditionally look like and we know who traditionally goes there <laughs> well we know who don't go there <laughs> that part <laughs> uh, yeah. so thank you <laughs> you're so welcome thank y'all so much next on the last will be first i decided to have a conversation with my kids and again, my son just finished the fourth grade and my daughter just finished the seventh grade. And I asked general questions. Yeah. What do you know about the civil rights movement? Uh, do you know any famous black inventors? What have you been told about slavery? And the answers are shocking. It is very little to none. And so when I throw out terms like James Baldwin, the Harlem Renaissance, I just get blank stares. I am 43 years old, and so I went to school in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And the things that I took for granted in terms of the education that's provided, I took it for granted. You learned about history. You learned about the contributions that African-Americans have made to the culture. And so to see that that's not being done now, it's kind of alarming. As we conclude our Back to School series, we assemble a group of parents from different generations to learn what their biggest challenges are raising educated children and how they're overcoming the odds. Like the last to be first, share it with family and friends, and don't forget to subscribe to Spotify so you never miss an episode. This is the last to be first.